0: Chapter nine of The Man Who Missed It by W. H. H. Murray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter nine Winter had passed and spring had come. The warm South, like a fair enchantress, had sweetly forced her way into the rigid presence of the Ice King and persuaded him to move his throne to the far north, giving her possession of his present kingdom. This he had not done all at once or without many exhibition of bad temper. At first he swore by all his blast that he would not move an inch, but would hold the earth and all the streams in biting bondage forever. In his quick rage he even made a dash at her, and his icy breath blanched the roses in her cheek. And frightened at his touch, she fled southward, until she flung herself icy cold into the warm gulf stream. From her fervid bath she rose, with all the color in her cheek and body glowing. Her beauty and courage returned from the warmth, and more ardent than before, floating up to the north, again and again she practiced her sweet arts. At last her charms proved irresistible, the icy heart of winter melted, and yielding to the gentle but persistent pressure of her warm palms, he gradually, halting over and anon as if reluctant, moved northward, and finally left his late realm to her sweet sovereignty. Never did a kingdom welcome the coming of a queen with greater alacrity. The pines shook off their covering of snow and waved their branches in her honor. The lakes steamed with fog, under the cover of which the blue waves fought with the ice for liberty. They flung the crystal blocks against the rocky islands. "'slid the great cakes up the sandy beaches, "'and pushed the floating masses down "'toward the open mouth of the outlet "'which hungrily swallowed them. "'The little streams swelled with importance "'and rushed ambitiously downward, "'as if eager to join the battle waged amid the fog, "'between the lakes and the ice. "'The rivers chafed their bands asunder "'and ran downward beneath the overhanging pines "'with rippling laughter. "'The hills began to sing,' The first partridge beat its roll-call, then sounded the robin's flute. The hermit thrush surprised the air with its one note of miraculous purity, while from the open waters of the lake the loon, sarcastic even in its gladness, poured forth its weird and mocking call. One morn a little spotted fawn stole timidly out from the dark balsam shadows and stood a moment with its small hooves buried deep in the bright sand looked its wonder for an instant from its clear eyes out upon the great stretch of water, and then stole back, frightened at the level of distance, perhaps. The next morning it came again, listened to the rippling song that rained its thin sound around the curved shore, boldly lapped the water with its tongue, and then frisked bravely in circles. Next morn a dozen of its kind chased each other in the wildest happiness from end to end of the bright beach, a few weeks, and the artibus flower came out sweetly as modesty's own self. Then the cold gray maples, the hard, wiry-looking birches, and the leaden-hued beeches took to themselves a new expression. Their hard looks softened, their rigid stiffness limbered to suavity. They seemed to thicken in the air, their branches became more pendent. AND ONE MORNING, A MORNING WITHOUT A CLOUD, THE SUN CAME UP FLUSHED WITH DETERMINATION, AND TO HIS ardor THE TREES YIELDED AND WELCOMED HIM, WITH EVERY BUD FULLY OPENED AND EVERY LEAF WIDESPREAD. SO WINTER PASSED, AND SPRING CAME TO THE WOODS. WITH THE COMING OF SPRING TWO PEOPLE, WHOSE PRESENCE HAD INCIDENTALLY FOUND ITS WAY INTO THE STORY, DEPARTED, DEPARTED WITH A HAPPINESS IN THEIR HEARTS, that only they know who have been delivered themselves or have had their friends delivered from the danger of death, for Tom had entirely recovered his health and returned to his city home and the duties of his profession, strong and robust. Their cabin, that the old trapper had built nigh his own, still stood with all the furniture in it, and often during the summer that followed and the succeeding fall the old trapper would go to the door, look into the familiar room and say, I hope the children be both well and then, closing the door again, would go about his duties. The young people departed, but the two old men remained. The trapper, whose stalwart frame the coming of years seemed to bring no weakness, but only a kind of seasoning, as it were, each leaving him a little thinner, but otherwise apparently unchanged, continued to go about his duties with his habitual alacrity, and to enjoy his pleasure with the same zest. Nature was a perpetual charm to him. His trained eye grew each year more skillful in its discriminating sight. His mind opened more widely, with a growing apprehension of her loveliness. In a hundred ways she provoked his humor continually to mirth, and at the same time the years made sweet addition to his native reverence, so that he presented the rarest and most beautiful of pictures, the picture of a man to whose gravity and whose laughter time makes equal addition. But to his guests the passage of time seemed to multiply his burdens. He gradually weakened through the winter, and unless when talking with Tom in reference to the possible recovery of his property, he showed little interest in the conversation or enjoyment that was going on around him. The young man had possessed himself of all the points of the case, and at his departure had left with his unfortunate client the assurance that he would recover from those who had cheated him, at least a competence, perhaps a fortune." The old trapper with his usual hopeful spirit had predicted to the young people at their going that what the winter had done for the young lawyer, the summer would do for his client. "'You needn't worry about the man,' he said to Tom. "'You needn't worry about him at all. He's sort of low-spirited now, and his appetite isn't first-rate, but he'll chirk up when summer comes and go to eatin'. And a man with a good appetite can't die unless by the Lord's appointment and something unnatural happens." "'No, you needn't worry about the man, for I shall keep my eye on him. "'And if you can only warm them vagabonds that's thieved his money from him "'and get the word in afore the snow comes, "'the chances be that he'll live twenty year yet. "'And twenty year's a good bit of time of a man "'that hasn't anything to do but enjoy it.' "'But in spite of the old man's hopefulness, "'his companion did not gain in strength as time passed. "'Spring matured into summer.' The long, warm August days came with their heat to the hills and the valleys, eliciting a hundred odors from the sods and the trees, odors pungent with the flavors of health. But however fine their ministry, it seemed unable to revive either his drooping spirits or give strength to his weakened body. The old trapper strove to interest him in his sports. He even made little excursions here and there by land and water hoping that the gentle exercise would beget an appetite and fresh scenes would bring back the departed animation to his spirits. The man who had missed it accommodated himself with the utmost patience to the plans of the trapper in his behalf and evidently strove to show his host that he appreciated the kindness of his intentions. But the desired benefit which the old trapper longed for was not experienced. Day by day his walk grew feebler on the carries his steps shorter and more unsteady. In the boat, his arms weakened more and more at the oar, until his stroke had so little of strength in it as to be inefficient. But the old man still persevered, and placing his guest in the stern of the boat and taking the oars himself, continued to make little trips hither and yon for the entertainment of his companion. "'You see,' said the old trapper to himself, "'it won't do to let a low-spirited man stay in one spot. You've got to keep him moving.' Or he'll get worse and worse. And if a man keeps getting worse and worse, something's starting to happen. And I'm determined to keep the man alive till he gets news from the boy. For I feel certain it'll be good news when it comes. And good news is the best physic in the world for a man that's down-spirited as he is. And so the old man continued, with the most touching perseverance, his benevolent endeavors. But in spite of all his efforts, his guests did not improve. It was evident that the kindness of the old trapper touched him deeply, and that he was making every exertion in his power to show his appreciation. And only one theme could the old trapper make him converse with animation, and that was the prospect of Tom's success in the impending lawsuit. Do you think, do you really think, John Norton, that there is any hope? said the man who had missed it one day, as the old trapper was rowing him around the lake shore. Think? said the trapper. Lord, friend, I know the boy will get your money. You see, he's got right in his side, and that's as good as an extra knife in a scrimmage. And the boy is smart. You know he's smart, and that counts a good deal on a tussle. When things are sort of nip and tuck, I tell you, friend, I'm mortally certain that the boy has them vagabonds on the gridiron and got them fairly simmering already. He'll bring you in a barrel full of money afore the snow comes. I wish I could think so, said the man. I could do a great deal of good if I had the money, but a man can't live beyond his time. You don't think, John Norton, that a man can live beyond his time, do you? Well, that depends a good deal upon who fixes the time, friend, answered the trapper. I don't conceit that a vagabond can live beyond the time of the Lord's appointment, especially if he is actually catched in some open deviltry and the man he's wronged has his finger on the trigger, and the sights be right. But if he be a good man who hasn't any traps, and hasn't his name on him, and no pelts in the cabin that he hasn't skinned, I can see that the Lord gives him a good deal of leeway, and makes the time of his going a little off and on like. For real honest men ain't plenty enough to be shut down on too sudden, and I can see that the Lord might alter his mind a little if there was actual reason for it. And so the two men would converse, and in each successive conversation the hopelessness of the one and the determined cheerfulness of the other stood in stronger and stronger contrast. At last autumn came, and the man, in very feebleness, unable to accompany the trapper on his trips, remained in the cabin, having for his companion his dog. The trapper, while he continued his customary application, shortened the lines of his trapping to that extent that he should not be compelled to stay out on the trail overnight. For he used to say to himself, Yes, I'll shorten the lines this fall so I can come in every night, for I don't just like the looks of things, for it certainly looks as if the man was going, and he shan't lack for comfort while he stays. Leastwise, if my being round will help him any, and so the old man shortened his lines, and every evening found him at his cabin ministering to the wants of his guest, both by helpful act and cheerful word. But more than once, when the old man was trailing the line of his traps, he would pause, and leaning on the muzzle of his rifle, remain for several moments in profound thought, and his meditation invariably ended in the remark, "'I certainly hope that the boy's is warming them vagabonds, and he'll get the news in soon.' "'for it looks to me as if the man was going.' "'And more than once when the skinning of a mink or an otter "'had one been nigh he could have heard him mutter, as he worked, "'I hope the boy will get the news in soon, "'for it certainly looks as if the man was going.' "'Yes, the man was going.' "'Slowly but surely his spirit was preparing to make its exit from the body. "'The old trapper did the best he knew to sustain and comfort his guest.' He would sit in the long evenings and entertain him with the experiences of his life, both grave and mirthful, thereby shortening the otherwise tedious hours with his vivid descriptions, his wise sayings, and his humorous remarks. It was a strange sight, truly, these two men, both knowing that one was nigh to the hour when mortal companionship would end, yet neither making any allusion to the approaching event. THE ONE ENTERTAINING THE OTHER AS BEST HE MIGHT WITH SPIRITED DESCRIPTIONS OF MEN AND OF SCENES AMONG WHICH HE HAD MINGLED, AND OF STIRRING EVENTS IN WHICH HE HAD BEEN A PRINCIPAL ACTOR, THE OTHER LISTENING TO THE NARRATIONS WITH PLEASED INTEREST, AS IF HE WERE NOT ALREADY AT THE POINT AT WHICH THE SCENES AND DOINGS OF THIS EARTH BECOME NOT, AND HIS EYES WERE SOON TO LOOK UPON THE SCENES INVISIBLE TO MORTAL SENSES. And yet perhaps it were as well if those of us who are called upon to minister to the elect, the chosen of God to a happier life than they had lived here, should intimate more closely than is our want the wisdom of the trapper. For there are ministries too fine for our bungling hands to apply, and there are messages which heaven sends to the soul too sweet and gentle for our harsh voices to speak in words. This is as it may... The two men never alluded to the event which both felt was inevitable, and would soon occur, but continued to impart and receive entertainment as man ministers to man. But one evening the trapper had remained in and about the cabin all day from feeling that things can't last much longer in this way, as he said to himself, one evening after the dishes had been cleared from the table, and from the little stand that stood by the side of the bed on which the trapper's guest was lying. The old man had seated himself in front of the fire, and the man began the conversation himself. "'John Norton,' he said, "'day after tomorrow will be Christmas. "'I came to you on Thanksgiving night, "'and as I have got to go away before Christmas Eve comes round,' I thought I had better tell you of some things that I would like to have done when I'm gone and perhaps ask your advice about some things. I suppose you know what I mean, John Norton. Yes, said the trapper, and rising from his chair, he moved it up nearer the bed and reseated himself facing his guest. Yes, friend, I know what you mean. And for the moment the two men looked at each other. "'looked at each other calmly as two spirits might look at each other "'when in the presence of some emergency "'they are about to draw together in closest companionship. "'I have certainly had a hard time on the earth, have I not, John Norton? "'Your trail has been all uphill, friend,' answered the trapper. "'And he paused a moment, "'and then with his eyes still looking into the eyes of his guest he repeated, "'All uphill, friend. "'What shall I find beyond John Norton?' queried the man. "'You'll find it all level, friend,' said the trapper. "'Do you think—' asked the man again. "'Do you think it will be hard for me to die? "'It will be easy, friend,' answered the trapper. The dog Lucky, who was lying on the bed near his master's feet, crept slowly up along the side of the body until he could command the faces of both speakers, and as the dialogue advanced he watched them alternately. "'Why do you think I shall die easily?' the man asked. you be too weak to die hard,' the old man responded. "'Are you certain, John Norton?' "'I'm certain,' was the reply. The dialogue had been carried on in the briefest possible sentences, and between each sentence there was a pause. Each spoke with the deliberation of a man asking and answering momentous questions. In a moment the dialogue proceeded— "'I shall find her over there, shall I not?' asked the man. "'You'll find her,' was the sententious response. "'In a body?' "'In a body,' was the answer. "'And the unknown. "'Those I have never seen, John Norton? "'The Maker of Sight will give you new eyes there, and you'll see.' After this there was silence. The man evidently was pondering— As a man ponders when he lies on the edge of the great unseen, a log in the fireplace broke in the middle and flamed brilliantly. One of the hounds rose, turned round, and lay down again. Lucky rubbed his head in mute tenderness against the arm of his master that lay within reach. Outside the world was white. The moon stood in the sky. Above the moon? What was there above the moon? Heaven, perhaps? WHERE shall I GO, OLD TRAPPER, WHEN I GO OUT OF THIS BODY AND THIS CABIN? ALL OLD TRAILS END AT THE EDGE OF THE GREAT CLEARING. FROM THERE EACH SPIRIT BLAZES ITS OWN LINE, ANSWERED THE TRAPPER. I HAVE SEED WHERE A GOOD MANY TRAILS STOPPED, FRIEND. I HAVE NEVER SEED A DIRECTION THEY TOOK OUT OF THAT. IT WOULD BE COMFORTING TO KNOW JUST WHAT WOULD HAPPEN AFTER DEATH, Mused THE MAN. "'You never know what a sunrise is till you see it,' returned the trapper. "'It'll be sunrise, sunrise out of night. "'That's enough,' and the old man said it with the reverence of profoundest trust. The man toyed with one of Lucky's ears a moment, looked at him as a man can only look at a creature from whom he had received no pain, but who has given to him such faith and love as belong only to deep affection.' And then he said, Will Lucky be there? It was a strange coincidence, a strange coincidence, truly. But when the man said, Will Lucky be there? the dog, with loving tongue, lapped the back of his master's hand as it lay against his muzzle, looked into his master's face, and lapped his hand. That was all. Your question is answered, said the trapper. I accept the answer, said the man. A creature of such intelligence and such affection cannot die. Such love can never perish. After this for several minutes neither spoke. At length the trapper said, You said, friend, you said you had something to tell me, some directions and the like, something perhaps you wanted done, and maybe it's as well you should speak of it now. I've done a good many things for redskin and white both, arter they was gone. And if you want anything done, friend, if the doing of it be within the range of my gifts, you have only to say it, for it will be done according as you say. Of course, said the man, speaking after a pause. I want you to bury my body after I have left it. It shall be done, responded the trapper. I wish you would bury it just by the rock on the bank to the east which commands a view up the lake. It is a cheerful spot for a grave, answered the trapper for the view is a good un and your body when you have left it, shall be buried where you say again. There was a pause. Have ye any wish, asked the trapper, as to how I should bury your body arter you're gone? Any directions about the service, any verses of scripture or the like? None at all answered the man. You may follow your own notions, John Norton. There will be what one mourner and he looked at his dog. Two, returned the trapper. "'Thank you,' replied the man. "'I believe you,' and he smiled gratefully. "'What about the dog?' said the trapper. The man hesitated a moment, and then timidly, "'Can he be of no service to you?' The trapper understood the hesitation of his guest and answered, "'The dog shall stay with me till he dies.' He shall not lack for food, and a corner of the hearthstone shall be his. That is all, I think, said the man. Unless—but he won't get it. I don't think he will, said the trapper. No, I don't think he will, but if he should—what do you wish done with it then? I have thought it all over, said the man. I held to it as my last hope. But he would have sent us word before now— In my pack you will find a paper. In it are written directions. There will be nothing to give, but, if there were, the paper gives it as I would have it given. Is there anything else? asked the trapper. Yes, said the man, and he stretched forth his hand, which the trapper met with his own. Yes, John Norton, there is something else. The gratitude of a dying man with a bed to lie on because you have given it to him, a house to die in because you have opened its doors at his coming, the gratitude of a dying man who owes more happiness in the last year of his life than the world had given him in twenty years to you, the gratitude of a dying man who knows his body will have burial by friendly hands and not be put in the pauper's corner." "'by the cold charity of those who are glad to get rid of a beggar. "'The God of the friendless reward you abundantly, old trapper, "'as your deeds deserve, and give you peace in your dying hour, "'as your goodness has given me, "'and a friendly hand to bury your body as you, I know, will bury mine.' "'Amen,' said the trapper, and the two men unclasped their hands, "'the one turning toward the fire.' the other sinking back upon the pillow, from which his earnestness he had partially risen. The trapper busied himself for a few moments in mending the fire. He placed some large logs in such a way that they would hold their heat during the night. And then, as he prepared to go to his own bed, he said, "'Friend, you will wake me if you want anything during the night. "'A word will be enough. I sleep light. "'Yes, I will wake you if I want anything.' answered the man. I feel as if I should sleep now. This was all that was said. In a few moments the trapper stretched himself on his bed and fell asleep. The man moved himself on to his other side, put his hand under his cheek, and in a moment he too fell asleep. And so both slept. One awoke, the trapper awoke at earliest dawn, but the other slept on, slept through the dawn and the day, slept on and woke not forever, at least the eyes of his body never opened, for the man who had missed it was gone. The trapper awoke, and stepping to the bedside of his guest, gave one look, and then he went to the large chest, took a piece of white cloth from its depths, and spread it tenderly over the sleeper's face, and as he turned away, said simply to himself, perhaps it was the best way. Christmas Day, In the cities the bells were ringing, in the wilderness no motion stirred the air into sound. On the bank which commanded the view up the lake, near the rock, was a grave, a grave half-filled. At one end of the grave stood the trapper, leaning on a shovel, at the other end of the grave stood a dog shivering. Far up the lake a runner on snowshoes was hurrying toward the north. When he reached the northern shore and clomb the bank, the grave was filled. The runner took a letter from his breast pocket and handed it to the trapper. The trapper took it, studied the address a moment, and said, Friend, you'll find fire and food in the cabin. The man understood the command and shuffled toward the house. The old man broke the seal, and spreading the letter out on his knee, studied its contents. The hand in which it was written was none of the plainest to eyes unused to penmanship. I don't get the run of all of it, said the old man to himself. The boy says he's got his case, and here's a figure two and a three and a five. Yes, that's a five, and the three ciphers be plain. Two hundred and thirty-five thousand dollars. It's a big sum, no doubt, though I don't quite get the size of the figures. And the old man looked at the letter, and then he looked at the grave, "'It's a big sum. It's a big sum,' he added as he turned toward the cabin. "'The boy has done well, but the news comes a little too late.' It was evening. The old trapper sat in his cabin alone. In his hand was a letter the runner had brought him. By dint of great perseverance he had mastered every word of its contents. It was written in Tom's happiest vein and told of a great success.' THE OLD MAN FOLDED THE LETTER CAREFULLY, LAID IT ON THE TABLE, AND AGAIN HE SAID, IT CAME A LITTLE TOO LATE, YES, IT CAME A LITTLE TOO LATE. I'LL GO AND SEE WHERE LUCKY IS, AND RISING FROM HIS CHAIR HE PUT ON HIS CAP AND OPENED THE DOOR. THE MOON WAS SHINING AT ITS FULL, AND AS HE NEARED THE GRAVE HE SAW THE OBJECT OF HIS SEARCH LYING AT FULL LENGTH UPON IT. HE WHISTLED TO HIM, BUT HE DID NOT STIR. HE APPROACHED AND PUT HIS HAND ON THE BODY the dog was dead. The old trapper rose, looked a moment at the grave and at the dead dog upon it, and as he turned away again, he said, Perhaps it was the best way. Perhaps it was. That night, one looking through the window might have seen the old trapper sitting by the fire with a book on his knees, a large book, bound with board covers, dressed in leather, a book printed with large, old-fashioned letters, the old man was reading aloud to himself and moving his finger slowly along as he read the words. says here, he muttered, it says here that to him that hath shall be given. That's certainly rational if the man has behaved himself, but that from him that hath not shall be taken even that which he hath. It bothers me, muttered the trapper. I know it be so, for the grave by the rock proves it but why it be so, that certainly bothers me. Perhaps Henry can tell me when he comes in. The End End of Chapter 9 End of the Story of the Man Who Missed It End of Murray's Adirondack Tales by W. H. H. Murray Recording by Keith Salas